may be crazy, but I'm the closest thing I have to a voice of reason. This is hell. Alex, would you like to tell people what the music was before today's show? That was uh, Gil Scott Heron singing a Bill Callahan song, two of my faves. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. The history of sugar in the United States is an ugly, brutal, cruel, deadly, and exploitative history, but... Far more than you may realize. Of course, sugar, like cotton, played a role in slavery, but not as much as a crop as it did a fuel with slaves regularly, given sugar water to prompt them to work harder for longer hours. That sugar water over the years would evolve into the colas we see on today's store shelves, drinks that deliver loads of sugar to those who have now been deemed by science as pre-diabetics, based sadly on race science, a concept that you'd think would have ended a very, very, very long time ago but still thrives very much to this day. This embodying of diabetes and race, despite there being no biological difference in humans based on race, fuels a pharmaceutical and technological industry that sees in African-Americans bio-capital that can be researched over and over and over again. Research that reinforces the position of the powerful, supported by scientific evidence found through an investigative lens that has never turned on power or the powerful. So what happens when a disease is not only racialized, despite it having nothing to do with race, but the science's focus is only on a cure and not on a prevention? What happens when the market is seemingly more incentivized to racialize diabetes, constantly monitoring through repeatedly updated technologies while offering a daily cure instead of the public health goal of preventing the disease in the first place? We'll find out in a few when we speak with sociologist James Doucette Battle, author of Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes. James is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. His research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of science, technology, and society studies and development studies and anthropological approaches to health and medicine. He applies these interests to study the political economy of genomic diseases, about race, risk, and health disparities. It's Tuesday, which means producing today is Alex Jerry. Alex, anything new about you? Uh, I just want to say a big thanks to all the magnolias, the maples, the red buds, the roses of Sharon, and those trees that smell like cum in my neighborhood. It's uh, got my neighborhood singing. It's beautiful outside right now. I thought that w- those were all nicknames for types of trolls for a moment. <laughs> I was like, what is a magnolia? I want to know what a magnolia is. How is that relative to a snowflake? Come, Quick to, up. come to my street, Chuck. It's beautiful. It's beautiful right now. It, our street is absolutely stunning. Uh, we got azaleas uh, sent to us. Laura got azaleas sent to us, uh, sent to her for her birthday, and they are absolutely stunning. We have an orchid that's blooming in our house right now. Really, just in, and, a, and an amaryllis. It's really incredible. Enjoying this uh, one week of spring. Work exactly. Quick update from our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brian Muir, this week on Telesur, English's news program from the South. Brian, who is co-editor at Brazil Wire, reported on the new Supreme Court ruling in Brazil, which opened a felony judicial bias investigation against former Lava Jato judge Sergio Moro, who had former President Lula imprisoned and removed from the 2018 elections, despite Lula having a massive lead in the polls. Moro removed and imprisoned Lula in order to open the door for Jair Bolsonaro's rise to the presidency, despite or maybe because Bolsonaro had links to the former military junta and had praised the fallen dictatorship. Immediately after taking office, Bolsonaro appointed Moro as his justice minister, and the first thing Moro did was try to pass a crime bill, which would have made it easier for police to kill people. If he had had his way, an act like the killing of George Floyd would have been fully legalized in Brazil. All of which means there is a possibility that during the investigation into Sergio Moro, who was behind the illegal ouster of one president and the illegal imprisonment of another, evidence may be submitted in court 
that shows the United States Department of Justice's role in the alleged crimes that overthrew democracy in Brazil while trying to install the remnants of a junta. And if it does come out that during the Obama administration and then into the Trump administration, while Democrats were complaining about Russian interference and Republicans were claiming voter fraud, both parties were involved in a bipartisan effort to overthrow socialism in Brazil, interfering in not only that nation's elections, but interfering in who actually gets to run for president and actually rewriting their laws. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? <laughs> oh, also, I just didn't want to say, because this has been sticking in my craw. Things stick in your craw? Yeah. Uh, just type in on Google, just type in Sergio Moro NPR and look at the first result, which is a glowing 2017 profile of Sergio Moro that I think should really be telling you all you need to know about how the Western media covers uh, Brazil and corruption uh, and the police. It's really interesting. So uh, judge behind Brazil's Operation Car Wash cleans up corruption. It's all, it's a, It was a morning edition piece, and it is... It's nuts. You should just go, go. You can read a transcript online. It's crazy. Who knew it. National Petroleum Radio would have such difficulties? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. What about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? You will win your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Thank you, Peter, who donated and showed his support over the last evening. We'll be reading an email from Peter later on on this morning's show. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, D-E-V-O-N, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we can actually get our mail now as the bar downstairs, Carrie's Lounge, has reopened. When the bar is not open, our mail could end up back at the post office, laying on the ground outside our front door on busy Devon Avenue. It might end up at the Halal Chinese restaurant next door or the place on the at the store next next to the bar on the other side, an internet cafe and cell phone repair shop that uh, offers, according to their sign in the front window, access to something called the iNeternet. And I have been wondering for years if that's a misspelling or a real thing that I should definitely log on to. Tarver emailed us at chuck at thisishell.com, writing... Chuck, could you please find someone to explain what the hell is going on in Ontario? Among other things, police were given sweeping new powers, and force after force says no thanks, not touching that. Outdoor activities banned under threat of a $750 ticket, as if that isn't just going to make people meet indoors even more. Tarver then includes a link to the Science Table, which is the group that's advising Ontario on COVID-19 response. And Tarver explains... These people have been advising the government, but have been ignored. It goes on and on. Also, I know that this is hell and all that, but the demon on my butt sound clip at the end of the show is getting kind of stale. Please get a new demon. Cheers, Tarver. Tarver also includes a link to an article by a Matt Gurney at the site tvo.org with the headline, There is no one at the wheel in Ontario. The government has been completely overtaken by events and lost control, not only of the crisis, but of itself. Gurney posted this a week ago on April 19th, so a week ago Monday, following a very eventful weekend in Ontario, apparently. As Gurney describes, the past 72 hours in Ontario have been, with no exaggeration, the most bizarre three days I've ever covered or even witnessed. There are four or five different columns I could write about it and all would cover some entirely distinct eye-popping angle. There's the do dozens of police forces refuse Premier's offer to, of power to arbitrarily stop and interrogate any citizen without limit column. Get that. Dozens of police forces have refused the Ontario Premier's offer of power to arbitrarily stop and interrogate any citizen without limit. The cops said no. 
There's an entire column about what the new police powers, even the lesser, revised versions mean. There's a border closure column. There's a column about the insanity of closing playgrounds. There's a column about the volcanic eruption of public anger after the new emergency measures that were announced on Friday. You could do an entirely separate one just on the astonishing outpouring of on-background only and off-the-record wailing and horror by progressive conservatives themselves, the likes of which I've never seen. If there is any meta-theme to be pulled from all of this weekend's complete bonkers insanity, it's that Premier Doug Ford and his government can no longer even pretend to be in control. So, to Tarver's question, what the hell is happening in Ontario? As the Washington Post reported yesterday, children's hospitals caring for adults all but emergency medical services canceled. Patients transferred from overrun intensive care units to sites hundreds of miles away, sometimes without their consent. Severely strained hospitals, Ontario, Canada's most populous province, are undertaking unprecedented measures to cope as a variant-driven resurgence of the coronavirus tears through much of the country. There are a record 851 adult patients with coronavirus-related critical illnesses in Ontario ICUs on Sunday, up 156% from a month ago. According to the provincial health ministry, nearly 600 were on ventilators. But critical care physicians say those numbers don't fully capture the number of severely ill COVID-19 patients. And as the AP reported last night, the government of Ontario will be getting help from Canada's military in dealing with a surge of coronavirus infections, while several other Canadian provinces are tightening health restrictions in hopes of avoiding a similar situation. So the hell that is happening in Ontario appears to be government, thankfully, losing control of cops because the government wants the cops to be more brutal than they are. A record surge of COVID variants is straining hospitals and Canada yet again leaning on their military to support its vaunted healthcare system. And folks here in the States, don't get all, so where's their great healthcare system now if they need to depend on the military to, pro- to provide healthcare services? Look, the U.S. has been doing the same thing since the outbreak began here and the service of military personnel here in the U.S. has been lauded. In reality, both Canadian and U.S. dependence on the military during crises proves we are not in any way prepared for any crisis, especially pandemics and climate change, all because of dependence on a market to fill in the gaps of a weakened social safety net. You can send us your comments on the show, guests or topic suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. You can DM them to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can just send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, diabetes and race science. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? What about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Again, you can leave your answer to the, uh, Facebook, at our Facebook page, email us, tweet it to us. But we got to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing the winner. Alex will also be telling you uh, who's coming up on uh, the rest of the shows this week. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is how sugar races through the veins of African-American and Pan-American history. It's in the blood of slavery and its ongoing legacy of institutional racism within and throughout the United States. That racism supports power and that power has evidence, has science to support their position that benefits from and reinforces their white supremacy and privilege. Here to give us an entirely different understanding of racism and how it's seeped deep into the literal blood of the United States sociologist James Doucette Battle is author of Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes. Welcome to This is Hell, James. Good morning, Chuck. I'm glad to be here. Uh, thank, thank you so much for being on our show. I just have to say that there is absolutely no way that we're going to be able to touch on everything that you discuss in this book. Clearly, if we did it in a three-hour conversation, we still wouldn't be able to. This is absolutely outstanding work, and it's a way in which I have never really thought about racism. You write that when you were a child, you would travel by car to New Iberia, Louisiana, where we stayed with my tante, Auntie uh, Francine, a very large woman with two very large daughters, my favorite cousins, Ariel and Marceline. 
Uh, one hot day, I opened the refrigerator and was confronted by an ominous-looking pitcher of cloudy liquid. The refrigerator light retract, uh, refracted by its opaqueness. I asked my mother, what is this? It's sugar water, she replied. Perplexed, I asked if someone forgot to finish making the lemonade. No, she said in a hushed tone. Per- people here drink that for energy. My tender age of six notwithstanding, surrounded my sugar cane, by sugarcane fields, only one word came to mind. Slavery. Do you think sugar water means slavery to everyone who sees it? How much is the legacy of slavery recognizable, I guess is the bigger question, by the public today, even for those who are descendants of the system of slavery? I think it's wholly unrecognizable. Um, No one drinks sugar water anymore um, um, in Louisiana. Um, There are far more um, seductive options available to all of us these days. Um, my grandmother weaned all of her children on sugar water and she swore by it. Um, none of them became a diabetic. Um, she was a diabetic. But um, when I was in graduate school, I read Sidney Mintz's uh, um, classic, Sweetness and Power, The Place of Sugar in Modern History. And it made me realize that on the maternal side of my family that we were completely embedded in this history of sugar. Um, not just sugar as a commodity and a historical artifact, but sugar as a um, social term that we all use for diabetes. Um, And uh, that really affected the trajectory of my research. And the way in which sugar is used, I I just thought this was really fascinating when you write, in fact, sugar was the term we used to refer to diabetes, but sugar also served as a term of warmth and affection, a personal pronoun, a verbal embrace that validates the sweetness of being one uh, brings to life. It pays homage to the meaning it signifies within the family and wider community. The intimate social bonds experienced and labeled around sugar coexisted in relative cultural harmony with the fatalistic acceptance of sugar in the form of diabetes. So what explains such good feelings around a word with such a deadly history? Why are words like sugar and and referring to people as sweetness, not terms of derision or or maybe even reminders of a horrible era instead? Well, the term is sugar. We call each other sugar. (laughs) That's correct. And um, I think it shows how from a social perspective, not only were we um, embedded in that history, that we embodied that history, but that despite um, the pain, the suffering, the trauma, the, um, the racial labor, the uh, extraction and exploitation of black um, and brown bodies, a certain social life was created and lived and shared and celebrated within our domestic and social and community spaces despite the fact that, yes, um, sugar was changing nutritional destinies, not just um, in, the, in the North, which um, Sidney Mintz uh, discusses in his book, um, but it was also changing our nutritional destinies in the, in, um, the South as well, and um, increasingly around the world. How much of the success of capitalism in the United States is through sugar water, which is not good for you? Is capitalism successful because it distributes something that is bad for you? Um, I would have to say that the influences of sugar and sugar sweetened or sweetened beverages has become so globalized that it's difficult to pinpoint any one particular area of uh, sovereign power or influence. Um, I'm teaching a class on drugs in U.S. society um, and its global connections. And um, this week, um, my students, well, last week they read Sweetness and Power, but this week we're looking at the phenomena of bubble tea and the ways in which bubble tea has completely captivated many in the young generation. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, it's a sweetened tea. It's uh, originated in Taiwan. And college students just absolutely rave over it. And it contains these tapioca balls, which uh, are yummy and gummy, and you can chew them after you drink the tea. But they also contain uh, significant amounts of caffeine. And uh, I have my students um, read Sweetness and Power in order to situate the ways in which sugar 
um, has insinuated itself in new ways and new guises and new beverages. And in doing so, have them reflect on, on how um, they themselves have come to embrace sugar-sweetened beverages and how, without any sort of coercion, we continue to, in a sense, um, find new ways of consuming, in a sense, um, sweetness and power. When you mentioned this globalization of sugar, would it be fair to say that the United States exported a sugar culture to the rest of the world, or is that misleading? That is mis... Well, from a corporate perspective, yes, we amplified it, but um, the ground zero of sugar production um, is in the Caribbean, Brazil, Cuba, particularly in, in the um, latter half of the 19th century. Um, Louisiana is a minor player in the sugar industry. Um, after the Haitian Revolution, Haitian refugees uh, came to Southern Louisiana and uh, they brought varieties of sugarcane that were able to withstand the periodic cold snaps in Southern Louisiana. And a domestic sugar industry was born um, in Southern Louisiana. Um, later in the 20th century, South Florida became a hub of uh, sugar production, but none of these areas competes to, um, has ever been competitive with the massive sugar industries of Jamaica, Haiti before the revolution, and um, Brazil and Cuba. Uh, so the United States, in a sense, um, in terms of sugar production, has never been a major player, but in terms of the corporate uh, branding and packaging and innovation around new forms of sugar consumption, yes, the United States has definitely led the way. So what's been the impact then? I, I didn't even think about this. I, I'm, I probably have 65 questions written for you. Um, so what's the impact then of corn syrup when it comes to sugar here in the United States? How does that fit into this idea of diabetes and how it affects uh, a certain race of people? Great question. Um, and that's why um, and that's why the book is entitled Recruiting Sweetness, because um, in some significant um, respects, we've kind of not moved beyond sugar, but there are new forms of sweetness that um, warrant discussion. And corn syrup is one of them. Um, Robert Lustig at UCSF put together a wonderful presentation. It's available on YouTube called Sugar, the Bitter Truth. And he basically argues that corn syrup and sugar, that the body treats them in similar ways um, in terms of uh, metabolizing um, the sugar or the glucose therein. Um, and that basically the body treats them, treats them the same. But what we have here in terms of corn syrup is part of a larger uh, political and economic phenomena that occurred in the 1970s and 80s through the Nixon Farm Bill that um, gave financial incentives for farmers to grow um, um, massive amounts of corn. And the technology was there um, to convert that corn into corn syrup. And um, in terms of the book, my major concern is not necessarily on these new forms of sweetness as much as it is upon the changing social contexts of our society that contribute to diabetes risk irrespective of race. And um, before our conversation, um, you were alluding to that in terms of the pandemic and the American Psychological Association two or three weeks ago released a study um, that, that stated that millennials and Generation X, Generation Y, um, I can't keep up with these generations, but that they have experienced a significant amount of weight gain during the pandemic. And I think the pandemic um, gives us a, a uh, some sort of indication, it, it, it warrants our attention to, 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 to what type two diabetes, what obesity, what type two diabetes risk 
will look like after the pandemic, because arguably um, obesity and type 2 diabetes will uh, persist long after the pandemic has passed. And as you were mentioning during your monologue, you know, how do we anticipate the ways in which future crises will affect the ways in which we live, the ways in which we move, the ways in which we eat? Um, increasingly, um, I think um, you may have experienced this or some of your friends um, may have, have also experienced the ways in which eating has changed during the pandemic, the ways in which we have increasingly begun to order our groceries and have them delivered, the ways in which we have begun to patronize food delivery services um, combined with lockdowns and quarantines and shelter in place. Um, this has affected, I think, the ways in which we have metabolized, in a sense, the pandemic in ways that we're going to, um, and my research is set to investigate further um, after or during and after the pandemic. Because right now we have no reliable data as to how the pandemic will affect the metabolic health of people in the United States. Which is something that I don't think I've heard anybody discuss before. You write that challenges, uh, that, uh, that your argument challenges arguments claiming that collecting and filtering data according to racial categories offer the best approach to understanding, managing, and curing type 2 diabetes. If African Americans suffer more from type 2 diabetes, why would race not give us a better understanding as well as a better understanding of how to manage and cure diabetes if, if there is a difference because i think this is the fail, failure of the logic if there is a difference in african-americans getting diabetes to non-african-americans getting diabetes what's wrong with studying that difference because i argue in the book that that difference is insignificant um so the book isn't really so, so the book argues against race to say that type two diabetes risk um, exists irrespective of race and that it's an environmental and social, socially contingent um, illness. Um, I base this argument off of James Neal's work in the early 1960s. He offered the what's known as the thrifty gene hypothesis that argued that humans have adapted over um, the course of our existence to feast and famine, and that that feast and famine physiology allows us to uh, survive periods of scarcity and abundance, and that people who have those that have what he called the thrifty gene would be able to withstand those vicissitudes of um, environmental change and crises. He never made that argument a racial argument. He's, he did say that hunter and gathering societies, people who were just entering um, modernity and urban life would be more susceptible. But as I discuss in the book, over the course of the 20th century, different ethnic groups in the United States have um, were seen as high risk type two diabetes groups. And African-Americans weren't considered that until the late oh, 1950s, 1960s, maybe 1970s. But at the beginning of the 20th century, Jewish American immigrants, mostly from Eastern Europe, were seen as the high risk type two diabetes group. And today, as I discuss in, um, in the book, no one really discusses or even mentions that history anymore. So you also write about the artificial normalities that we so often embrace. And you write that the most artificial normality begins with the concept of biological race, not only as a measurable norm, but also as a measurable risk. Genetic and genomic research cannot locate race as a bioassessment. Short of this, racial biomarkers for type 2 diabetes remain elusive. How do we understand race differently when we view it as a measurable norm or risk? How does that affect the way that we understand race? Well, my friends in public health would argue that if we don't understand illness, if we don't understand disease and risk through the lens of race, that we complicate efforts to create targeted um, public health outreach campaigns, education campaigns, and targeted treatment modalities towards specific populations. 
But what I found interesting in during my research is that, for instance, in the United Kingdom, um, Afro-Caribbean and Sub-Saharan African immigrants or citizens, Black, um, what are otherwise known as Black British, Black Brit the Black British population is not seen as a high-risk type 2 diabetes population. That, um, that focus, that particular um, concern is extended to South Asian populations. So um, race per se is a at best a social proxy for other conversations around resource access, access to, to health care, um, other social determinants of health such as uh, location, um, segregation, um, food, food apartheid, and so on and so forth. But um, race itself is a poor indicator for type 2 diabetes. So as an anthropologist um, in the American Anthropological Association, and I am an anthropologist, I'm an anthropologist who, um, who works in a department of sociology. Um, the American Anthropological Association is extremely clear um, that race has no biological basis in fact. So from that standpoint, my work argues that it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to ascribe racial risk to type 2 diabetes. Um, there are countries all over the world that are doing research on type 2 diabetes. And as I discuss in the book, uh, there is something called a diabetes. There are many types of algorithms called diabetes risk scores or diabetes risk assessments. And the Chinese have been busy putting together a Chinese diabetes risk score. The Danish have one, the Finns have one, the Australians have one, we have one. And in all of those uh, algorithms, different ethnic groups are seen as the high risk groups. Um, so what we have here are bio, what we call biopolitical assessments of particular groups occupying particular national spaces that are characterized by unequal access to health care, um, economic, social um, inequality, uh, resource deprivation, uh, underemployment, um, poor education, so on and so forth. So this is kind of what I'm looking at and, make, and, and arguing in the book that race is not the lens for is not the accurate lens for assessing type 2 diabetes risk. And you point out that the age of discovery, the enlightenment, the industrial revolution, and the concomitant rise of science heralded a historical trajectory of durable metabolic significance. These moments facilitated the industrialization of both scientific knowledge and sugar production and their global diffusion. In other words, science and sugar as racial projects created new categories of human difference in relationship to labor, capital, and production. So. Are sugar and science then drivers of the exploitative and unhealthy nature of our current form of capitalism, whatever you want to call it? Can, can racism end without ending this race science? Because as you were just saying, race has no difference. There is no difference in biological fact. To what ex or how far could we go toward, and I, I hate to say the, this phrase, ending racism by people recognizing that there is no biological difference between the races. Uh, as you mentioned at the top of our conversation, that would be a three-hour um, <laughs> engagement, uh, I think, and I'm going to try to approach this as diplomatically as possible. Um, I think that medical justice in the absence of social justice uh, will be an elusive um, goal as long as we um, continue to struggle to achieve that. Um, and by inclusion, um, that means racial justice. I think uh, when we look at uh, the recent events around African-Americans and uh, lethal violence in this country, um, the George Floyd verdict, 
Um, what I found is, is that many people like to um, evoke the Tuskegee uh, syphilis study as one of the landmark cases of medical injustice that continues to affect African-American um, hesitancy, apprehension, distrust of science and medicine. Um, and that, to a certain extent, um, did um, emerge during my project. And I do discuss that in the book. But on the other hand, there are more contemporary um, events and spectacles of injustice and violence that and trauma. We have to remember that the African-American community over the last 40 years has withstood a crack cocaine epidemic, has withstood an HIV epidemic that increasingly um, began to affect um, African-American women disproportionately. They've undergone um, mass incarceration, which has rendered families and communities asunder in some extremely um, um, devastating ways. Um, these communities continue to deal with the effects of um, violence in their own neighborhoods and violence directed toward them as a racial category. And I think once we begin to parse out the ways in which these particular phenomena, these particular forms of affect of, of, of racial trauma have affected the community, I think that until those things have made legible, sub substantive progress, I think that trust is going to be an elusive goal. Particularly, I think, more recently, we've seen it in terms of vaccine hesitancy among African-Americans um, around the pandemic and around, um, and, and around uh, getting, getting vaccinated. Um, I saw a survey last month that said that over half of the African-American health professionals surveyed were apprehensive about receiving the vaccine. And this is a population that you would think that you would think would be better informed, that would have the health and medical literacy um, necessary to, to make what many of us would consider to be um, the obvious, the logical decision, and that would be to receive the vaccine. So to answer your question um, in the time that we have, I would just simply have to say that medical justice in the absence of social justice will remain an elusive goal until we can achieve both. You mentioned trust. To what degree do you think that trust in the vaccine, the current vaccine, is undermined by sugar or science still being a colonial project to this day? And in if and is sugar and science a colonial project to this day? Um, to quote my, uh, one of my mentors, Paul Rabineau, who just passed away, I would have to say that we're no longer in what we can call a colonial or even a post-colonial moment. I will argue that we're in a contemporary moment. It's an entirely new time. It's a new milieu. It's a new environment. It's a new global world, not only of um, new forms of global citizenship, but new forms of consumption, um, the ways in which the environment um, continues to have to respond to our desires for new forms of sweetness, for new forms of consumption, uh, whether it's palm oil or sugar or exotic forms of coffee or cocoa in West Africa, which has resulted in uh, the diminution of over 98% of the virgin forest in places like Ivory Coast. Um, these delinkages, these forms of alienation, to use a Marxist term, between the sources of the things that we desire to consume and their effects not only on the environment, but also on our global physiology, so to speak, the global metabolism. So 
capitalism in a way, you know, my students are often far more militant than I around these things. They want to see an end to capitalism. They want to see, um, they want to see it uh, removed. They want to see it um, dead and buried. But I asked them, if we got rid of capitalism, what would we replace it with? They don't have a ready answer for that. Um, and I only ask them that question because the United States is a country that has moved by and large from production as the basis of its economy to consumption. And how to reorient, how to reorient our, um, our ways of living and being and laboring that first requires us to realize that increasingly we labor in order to consume and that consumption itself is a new form of labor. And social media, digital technology, um, the ways in which we're increasingly on our phones, um, my students um, are realizing, and we have robust discussions about the ways in which these forms of digital consumption feed into these other forms of um, consumption, uh, whether it's sugar, whether it's food, um, whether it's new forms of shopping or commodification, the ways in which young people are increasingly willing to and, and um, embracing the notion of turning themselves into brands that can be commodified um, across digital platforms. Um, it's an entirely new moment. So that's why I caution against looking at this through a colonial or even a post-colonial lens. That might even be a 20th century retro sort of gaze, but that we're in an entirely new moment now, um, a contemporary moment in which consumption is creating new forms of social life and sugar is just one of those legacy artifacts, one of those legacy uh, comestibles, so to speak, that seems to endure throughout all of these time periods, throughout all of these epics. And um, my work going forward is uh, devoted to seeing how sugar takes on new forms of, of social meaning because it's really about the ways in which people get together and determine how the commodity has social meaning, has social value. So when uh, an anthropologist is in the field, say in, in a developing country, and they're interviewing a family, a family of extremely limited means, and uh, you're sitting in the living room and the mother comes out of the kitchen proudly holding a tray with four glasses and a bottle of Coca-Cola. What do you do? Do you say, I don't drink sugar-sweetened beverages? Or do you graciously accept that little glass of Coca-Cola? And you harmonize with the group, understanding as an anthropologist, as a social scientist, that a tremendous amount of social meaning has been attached to this commodity, to this substance. That in many ways, yes, is capital and commercial and commercially influenced and, um, and also um, in, um, has, has in a sense infiltrated our social consciousness. But then you realize that this is a phenomenon that's bigger than any one individual. And um, I've talked with social scientists who travel to other countries and had these experiences, whether with Coca-Cola or some other, even tobacco to a certain extent, depending on where they um, did their work. And you just realize that these commodities themselves take on social lives all their own. And apart from the branding, apart from the distribution and the advertising and the marketing, which in a sense create these conditions that don't appear to be coercive, 
but in many respects they are. But once social groups begin to take hold and begin to use these together in, so, in shared spaces, they take on lives all of their own. I, that's the that's 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 the confounder here. Right, right, and and I couldn't help but think about um, right after nine eleven, President George W. Bush saying, after the attacks, people were saying, "Well, what should we do?" And he said, "Go out and shop. Go shop. Go shop." What happens to our concept of citizen when we move from being producers of goods to consumers? Does that is that idea of consumer citizen as consumer is that what feeds into the kind of constant economic growth that many are saying is causing climate change i mean there's so much there's so much i want to ask you about that so what happens to our concept of citizen when we move from being producer to consumer i use that term consumers um citizen in the book um well it's about a form of citizenship that labors in new ways and it's not only about the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. It's about the ways in which we are increasingly made responsible for consuming and understanding um, health information, uh, scientific progress, the ways in which um, these new forms of social engagement are in and of themselves forms of consumption. Because I think you know, part of my um, attraction to anthropology initially was uh, in the area of biological anthropology, and that is the ways in which humans have come to adapt to the environment and evolve over the millions of years that we've been on the planet. And over that time, um, particularly over the last 10,000 years since the end of the last ice age, you know, we have increasingly given up hunting and gathering. We have begun to settle down in settled societies. We've begun to cultivate grains and other forms of um, nutrition. And we've begun to sit and we've begun to, to write or compose poetry or um, immortalize memories and, and, and knowledges and skills. Um, languages have developed, written languages have developed. And increasingly, this relationship between encephalization, as we would call it, or feeding our brains, for lack of a better term, and sedentism or sitting is part of a process that we can also say is a form of consumption, of, of um, intellectual consumption, mental consumption. And now we live in an age where through our devices, we are sitting for longer periods of time um, parents are beside themselves um, in many um, households as to the amount of screen time that their children are spending consuming data, information, images, sounds, all forms of input. And many of the parents themselves and even some university professors are themselves complicit with these new forms of encephalization and sedentism. And part of what I'm talking about in the book are the ways in which Increasingly over time, these ever-changing forms of consumption are raising the, the metabolic states, stakes of human existence. And sugar is just one aspect of that. Um, but it's an important one. And that's why in the, in the book, I'm very careful to make that link between sugar um, on the one hand, as a historical artifact and commodity, but on the other hand, as a metaphor for the ways in which we increasingly live in new ways. So how much does diabetes then reflect any desire that we may have or hope we may have for technical technological solutions to all of our problems, which just seems to be such an, a thing that you hear in the United States when it comes to challenging climate change. There will be a technology that will save us from this. So how, does, uh, how much does diabetes reflect that desire for technological solutions? Excellent question. Um, and I think uh, particularly given the ways in which uh, global competition encourages and in many respects rationalizes an emphasis on STEM education, I think we also need to be increasingly attentive to the ways in which in our schools, um, 
physical education is um, increasingly de-emphasized. Um, in some school districts, even recess is under threat. Um, here in the Bay Area, um, I have a colleague, Rebecca London, in my department who's doing work on recess and the ways in which private firms, nonprofits even, have gotten involved to bring recess to schools um, just to get children moving again. Um, we need to um, place increased emphasis on our built environments that encourage us to walk more, um, that uh, to discourage the use of automobiles, particularly in city centers, and um, encourage us in in, um, in non-coercive, but definitely um, in inviting ways to just simply move more, to eat better, um, and to um, realize that this is not only an important aspect of physical health, but also social health. And I think if there's one thing that the pandemic has shown and the ways in which people have increasingly um, um, had to uh, spend more time indoors, for example. I think that coming out of the pandemic, I think that we're going to find a greater appreciation for the outdoors and for freedom of movement. And um, I'd like to be optimistic about what the future will hold in that regard. I'd like you to be optimistic, too. I wish I was optimistic as well. But one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about the impact <laughs> corporate pushing for research or uh, recess is I'm looking forward to uh, Coca-Cola being the corporate sponsor of recess. That's kind of a fear that I might have right now, uh, James. So you write that with an increasingly sedentary global uh, cross-section of humanity wading in a pool of excess calories, racial theories of diabetes, risk persist despite evidence of our diversely shared metabolic contributions toward the obesity and type 2 diabetes epidemics and the creation of a type 2 diabetes industry. To what extent do you fear there will be a similar COVID-19 industry with no cures, only profitable vaccines and boosters ad infinitum? Well, um, that may indeed be the case where um, people have to get yearly or, or, or once every two year vaccinations uh, for COVID or from some form of SARS COVID um, virus that um, is similar to the ways in which many people have to get flu shots every year. Um, but by and large, vaccines are not profitable to pharmaceutical companies. The pandemic, the pandemic may have created an entree for making um, these particular vaccines profitable. But generally speaking, pharmaceutical company profitability is based on creating repeat users. And uh, in terms of type two diabetes, when it comes to uh, medication, um, testing equipment, um, glucometers, for example, type two diabetics are that class of repeat users that um, represent and are characteristic of the types of uh, forms of revenue generation that are most profitable to pharmaceutical companies. So generally speaking, vaccines have historically not been profitable to pharmaceutical companies. We shall see how um, the future plays out in regard to COVID-type vaccines. You also point toward uh, the writing of cultural anthropologist Talal Assad, who reminds that both the anthropological encounter and ethnographic artifact are products of unequal power relationships between the West and the rest, occurring since the emergence of bourgeois Europe, of which colonialism is but one historical moment. Knowledge generated about dominated others produces universal understanding on one hand. On the other, this knowledge reproduces inequalities and in capacity between the Euro-American world and the non-Euro-American world. Access to the field as both ethnographic and scientific methods of objectification as knowledge has the potential to reify exploitation as power supports research. Do power and research in the West have a conflict of interest? How much is research guided by power, and for that matter, is research power? Well, the ability to ask questions and get answers in many respects is predicated 
on certain types of privilege and power. For an anthropologist, for a researcher, for a clinical recruiter to show up from God knows where <laughs> into some village in the developing world and begin to ask questions, to develop relationships, to enroll people to participate, to gain their consent, that requires a certain amount of power. And I think, um, as I discuss in the book, um, the ethics or the bioethics around this continues to lag behind the realities in the field. So as I discuss in, um, in, in one of the chapters, um, ethics or bioethics as a workable document, to quote um, Adriana Petrina, is always in a sense pre-paradigmatic. It exists before the paradigm changes. And it's very difficult for ethics to keep up with conditions in the field and the new ways in which um, research, research supports the asking of new questions. And it's the asking of these new questions and the ability, or at least the intentionality of generating answers, responses, data from those questions through those methods usually leaves ethics um, and ethical um, concerns lagging behind the imperatives of research. And in that respect, this is where we can locate power. But power itself, particularly my understanding of it as an anthropologist, isn't some sort of top-down executive fiat that emanates from some office or some chamber in New York or London or Paris. All of us, through the forms of consumption that we under that 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 we um, engage in, the, for lack of a better um, example, but the prime example here is sugar. The ways in which our forms of consumption, the ways in which um, our um, choices around the ways in which we live, the ways in which we shop, all of these different aspects of our lives require us all to think about the ways in which our choices reproduce power. So in many respects, um, power isn't something that can be located as a tangible um, as a tangible force quite often, but um, as Michel Foucault, um, famous French um, thinker argued, one way to measure power is through its effects on the bodies of its intended targets. And this is where medical justice comes in. This is where health access comes in. This is where the ability to measure the effects of the market, of society, of politics, of unequal social relations, of racism, sexism, genderism. This is where we can find, this is where we can measure the effects of power. So power exists, the effects of power and the reproduction of power, arguably, and I take pains to um, lay this out in the book, is something in which we are all involved in reproducing each and every day. And first, I want to just want to say I've really enjoyed our conversation on medical justice. And as I was saying at the beginning, uh, the book that James is the author of, Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes, is so much more than what we've discussed today. This is just skimming the surface of how deep this book goes into diabetes and medical justice. Uh, we've been speaking with anthropologist James Doucette Battle, who works in the sociology department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. James, I have one last question for you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. You write, violence is embedded within any narrative of progress, particularly scientific narratives. The historical violence of racial science continues in the face of both natural and social scientific declarations that race 
as a biological construct has no basis in scientific fact. Race, unlike neighborhoods, offers no discrete or reliable prediction of biological behavior, and therein lies the violence of claims seeking to link race and risk within unequal narratives of hope. Does science and progress continue a cycle, a spiral of ongoing racialized violence? Yes and no. Yes, to the extent that the racialization of science perpetuates that violence. But no, to the extent that in many respects, the science often reveals the deeply embedded inequalities and violences that exist within the society, but they're not mutually exclusive because science itself, scientists, scientific projects are themselves part and parcel of the society itself. So the answer to your question is yes and no. There's it's an, it's an answer that requires us to move beyond the duality of yes and no, and to see that the ways in which they're both interrelated. That is an exceptional answer to a question from hell. James, I really appreciate you being on, this, uh, to, on today. This is a fascinating, fascinating book. Again, please check out James Doucette Battle's new book, Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. Take care. See, this is not the media. This is hell. And if you liked our conversation with James on his book, Sweetness in the Blood, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find the many ways in which you can support This Is Hell, as well as all of our merchandise and a direct link to our Patreon podcast, which airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m., Chicago time and then his podcast after or shortly after at the same place patreon.com slash this is hell and actually the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want and you can check out all that merchandise right now at this is hell.com when you click on support Alex well, well first of all thanks to Peter who went to this is hell.com and did click on support yesterday Peter writes consider this donation to be like back wages. I've been a listener for nearly two decades. Only now I have a bit of economic security. Love you. So thanks, Peter. And you got to tell me what economic security feels like because I've not had that since I got my first allowance for making my bed every day. And a dime a day is no economic security, even for a five-year-old. Alex, please remind us what is this question, this week's question from hell and how are our listeners replying? This week's question from hell is... What about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Joanne C. says, there was a pandemic? (laughs) Nick A. says, the brilliant discourse about libertarian con man who abused and neglected hundreds of endangered large felines. Okay. Jacob H. says, the vanishingly small amount of time people pretended to care about essential workers. (laughs) Darren S. says, we should all wear masks permanently forever. Sean M. says, Sarah Cooper... Garrett S says being alive. John W says having to adjust from working, having to adjust to working from home instead of already doing that. Jessica P says cheap flights to Europe. <laughs> what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Spencer N says you could still get murdered in broad daylight by a human cop instead of a pack of Boston Dynamic robot dogs. Nice. Marco G says we hope for a revolution and also day drinking. And finally, No Whack W says. Either patent rights on vaccines or privatized healthcare, possibly both. Turns out direct democracy did more for us than all the politicians combined. Shrug emoji. Oh, and finally, Wally R says, living through it. <laughs> I got an email from a friend uh, who lives in Michigan this week, and he told me that, uh, hey, I'm visiting. I'm going to come into uh, Chicago to hang out. Do you, you want to go out? You want to hang out? And I'm like, dude, you are the virus. You're in freaking Michigan. I have no idea how many... How are you getting here? And he's like, oh, I'm going to take the bus. That's a great idea. Take the bus with a whole bunch of people who may or may not have the virus in a place that's overrun with many variants right now and then visit me in Chicago. That's brilliant. 
We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Al on tomorrow's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Finally, finally, we're talking to Vincent Bevins about his book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade, and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. Which has been a cure for my lower back, so that's a big plus. Please please don't bring that up to Vincent. (laughs) And what about, uh, actually, it's the, uh, what are they called, the McKenzie stretches I've been using. There's also the Alexander Technique. Is there? That's right, I've heard of that too. Have you tried the Alexander Technique? No, I just know it because it's my name. (laughs) I found it like a thrift store one day. Have you ever thought about changing your name to Alexander Technique? That'd be a cool name. What about Thursday's show? Uh, real excited for this. Uh, attorney Adolfo Minka is going to be on to talk about his Black Agenda Report piece, Spirit of Self-Emancipation Continues to Rise, the St. Louis City Justice Center. Wait, there's an uprising at a jail somewhere here in the United States that's not being covered by the mainstream media, Alex? Uh, I will say, in, in <laughs> not in the mainstream media's defense, it is so hard to find writing about prison uprisings. Oh, man. Uh, I've been looking for this piece for a long time, so I'm real excited to have this uh, have Adolfo on. And there's a piece. big deal happening in August and early September again, where there's going to be a big prison abolitionist uh, march and rally. One's going to be like August 23rd, and the other one's September 9th. So if you want to look that up, this it's the same protest that happened last year with fewer participants because of COVID and then in 2019 as well. But it's an event that keeps happening over and over again and is never covered whatsoever. Also on Thursday, we'll have Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to James Doucette Battle, our guest and his book, again, is Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes. If you enjoyed that conversation, please so show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. From my cold, dead hands, Tarver. <laughs> my demon is on my butt. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. It's Alex's flintlock of a closing. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.